all on trial before Agrippa. Now, there's really going to be two parts. Now, there's, if you, as you can see in chapter 26, there's 32 verses, but there's going to be two parts. We may just get to part one tonight. Uh, it just depends on how the Lord leads. We could get through it quickly and, and get through all of them. Um, but really, the, the two parts we see here is Paul's testimony, and then we see the response. The response from Festus, we see the response from Agrippa. And it's very interesting. So the, the very first of what we're going to look at is verses 1 through 18. And then we're going to read that. And then uh, if we get to it and have enough time, we'll continue with verse 19. All right. Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews, wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion I lived a Pharisee, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even into strange cities. Whereunto, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining right about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. There's a few things that we want to go back and just kind of go through verse by verse and look at, but one of the things is that as we're getting close to the end that we see yet again is it acts if you have read it the, for the first time think about how many and the variety of ways which we have seen the gospel being spread the various ways in which the, the you know the situations we see Paul in and Peter and the apostles and the church and uh, you know, and not only the, the variety of ways which, which they've done, that, well, think about what Paul did. Paul reasoned from the scriptures and the synagogues. He preached Christ. He preached Christ at the riverside. He preached Christ in the marketplace to the Gentiles. Uh, he preached Christ, and uh, he even was a testimony that, uh, to the Philippian jailer how he did not leave the Philippian jail and preached Christ to him. And we see that he also reasoned with them in Athens. Um, you know, he had declared, I mean, not just from the reason with them from the scriptures, you know, think about the Greeks there at Mars Hill. He reasoned with them by creator God. You know, they, they didn't know the scriptures. They didn't have the scriptures. So Paul reasoned 
about Christ from just what they saw in creation. And so we also, I mean, we see this variety of ways in which we can preach Christ. We can be a testimony of Jesus Christ. And um, and it's just, you know, someone who grew up with Acts, uh, many of you have, sometimes you have to step back and take a look at this and just see what a, what a perspective this is and how the Lord instructs us, you know, in any situation we can preach Christ. And, but we also see a variety of uh, responses, don't we? Acts shows us a variety of responses. And what's interesting, in some shape or form, we have these responses today the same responses that they had back then. Now, as, as Paul is preaching, um, we see some, you know, so far we have seen responses of hate, anger, uh, mental assent, mockery. They, they mocked Paul on Mars Hill. Uh, we actually even see people worship Paul and Barnabas. As, you know, when Paul had healed the lame man there at Lystra, how they had... Uh, he uh, worshipped him, and we also see emotional people, you know, who are moved. Some are totally ignoring him. Some falsely accuse the preacher. Some repent, though, don't they? Some have true repentance, and some do not have true repentance. They have a sorrow, but it's not a true repentance. It's just amazing how many reactions that we've seen to the preaching. So not only the variety of ways in which to preach, it's the same truth, but a variety of ways, but a variety of reactions. We're going to hopefully see two reactions today. One is by Festus, one is by Agrippa. But Paul is, is teaching on two main themes here. The, the first theme is Jesus of Nazareth, has been raised again, and he is the Messiah. That's the first thing. Now, as we read this early on, it really didn't sound like a defense so far, did it? It didn't sound like him on trial like the other two times that we saw Paul on trial. He's, he's now, he's just giving his testimony. He's starting from the beginning. Hey, when, when I was a child, King Agrippa. And so the second major theme we see going through here is the remarkable change which God made in Paul's life. I mean, it's night and day. I mean, his testimony starts with him being a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And and that's where we're really going to start here in chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself, then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. So um, just a little bit a little bit of background. Uh, up, up until this point, just, you, you, you may not need it, but uh, there may be some people who do need it. Uh, at this point, we know that, that Paul has been recalled back up, that King Agrippa has visited the, the newly appointed governor, Festus. King Agrippa II, he's a Herod. He's the last Herod that, that there will be. And uh, Herod is considered the resident expert of all things Jewish con- you know, by the Romans. Um, Herod was Jewish. You know, he was an Edomite. And so the Herods were Jewish, but they were appointed as kings by Rome to these little provinces, so Judea. And it seems like the, the more the Herods went, the, the, the less uh, area that they were given authority to rule over. So this King Agrippa II um, is a ruler over the small province, maybe the northern part of Israel, and all things temple. And so he's coming, he's visiting Festus, the newly appointed governor, and there's a big pomp parade uh, there in verse 23. You know, here comes Agrippa and Bernice. We talked about Bernice being, you know, that he was a bit scandalous that Bernice was Agrippa's sister, and his mistress. So that was a bit scandalous, and it's interesting how Luke had included Bernice. So when you see Agrippa, you see Bernice in the text. And so they had this grand ball, this grand entry, this grand parade, the pomp and pageantry, and then Festus gets up, and he gives this long introduction, 
this overwhelming flowery uh, flattery to King Agrippa, and Festus says, I have an issue. Paul had appealed to Caesar, but I find nothing chargeable that I can write in a letter to, uh, to Caesar, and we know that it was Nero at this time, uh, there's nothing that I can write in a letter to send Paul with. And so King Agrippa, I want you to hear uh, Paul here and see if there's anything that you can help me with. And that's where we start chapter 26, verse 1. So the first thing we see with Paul is he's ready. And there's so many kind of implied lessons that we're going to look at tonight. Paul was ready to give an answer to the hope that was within him. Remember 1 Peter chapter 3, I believe it is. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, always be ready to give an answer. And Paul was ready. You know, he didn't cower at this, at this, you know, this massive, probably very, uh, to, the, to the eyes, very impressive gathering. In verse 2, he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day, before thee touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews, wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Now this wasn't flattery. Uh, this was an actual fact that King Herod Agrippa, as I said, was kind of the, the resident expert in the Jewish customs, the Jewish mannerisms, the uh, you know, as far as the Romans, you know, as far as who Paul has stood before, as far as uh, authority, this was the closest thing to anyone knowing and were having knowledge of the Jews and the Jewish customs. One thing, though, in favor of Paul here is that Herod is not necessarily inclined to the Sanhedrin. Uh, Herod was not looked upon favorably by the Jews, you know, the Orthodox Jews or the, the Zealots. Herod leaned towards Rome. He was kind of in that world. He, he liked to be Roman. And even the, uh, the, the great Jewish revolt in 66 AD, uh, Herod kind of gets out of the scene and then he just runs away. And so he doesn't help the Jews at all. He just, he wants to be all things Rome. And then later on, uh, he's found again, and then he sticks with the Romans. Now, so it, it was kind of in Paul's favor that Herod is not going to side with the Jews just because they're Jews. And he's uh, Edomite. He's, he's of the Jewish religion. So in verse 4, so there's going to be a couple interesting things that, that come from that. Verse 4, Paul starts from the very beginning, doesn't he? He says, my manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Now, there's a couple things. Um, we know from... Uh, chapter 22, verse 3, Paul makes a comment and he is preaching or he's, he's testifying to the Jews themselves that he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Paul, about 15 years old, his parents, we know that Paul's from Tarsus in Cilicia, and about 15 years old, he went to Jerusalem, and from 15 to about 30 years old, he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. And... Um, which, it's interesting with the dates, Paul was born, they think, around 4 A.D. So, you know, just to make it a little bit easier, let's just say he was born in zero. So he was 15 years old and then 30, so 30 years old when he became the Pharisee. And so now it is A.D. 59. So when Paul became the Pharisee of the Pharisees, and remember, Paul was popular. He, he was kind of the Jewish celebrity back then. He was uh, a, the, the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He excelled at, at everything, more than his countrymen. We see that over and over, that Paul said that he was, he was the cream of the crop. This would have been about 30 years ago that these Jews that are there now at this court with Agrippa, and the, the same ones charging Paul, 
probably had a memory of Paul, like literal memory of him. Not just the fame of who Paul or Saul of Tarsus was, you know, to them, but he was raised under the feet of Gamaliel. But notice he does not tell that to Agrippa here. All he says to Agrippa is that he was, he lived a Pharisee. Now, that's all he had to say to Agrippa. Agrippa knew what a Pharisee was. They were the strictest sect of the Jewish religion. There were three of them, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And the Pharisees, according to the historian Josephus, they were the ones who were the strictest and the most holiest of manner of living, of life. Um, but here we see that Paul is, is introducing himself saying, I was a Pharisee, or I lived a Pharisee, and a very popular one at that. In verse 6, he says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. So now Paul has identified himself as I'm one of these guys, except now they're accusing me of celebrating or having faith or looking forward to the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Now remember the, the first one in front of Felix that they had an attorney named Tertullus. And Tertullus said, here's this Paul guy, and, and he is, he's the head of this new faction called the Nazarenes. And he's leading the people astray, and he's got all this sacrilege and everything. But here again, uh, Paul is saying, I'm in line with the Old Testament scriptures here. This isn't some new fad. This isn't a new religion. King Agrippa knew who the Pharisees were. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 6. And then verse 7, Unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come? For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. And so Paul is inclining and he's getting in line with the teaching of the Old Testament. Now the hope of the promises... Those are all the Old Testament promises. But what are the Old Testament promises? Uh, I don't know if you have in your Bible, it gives me a reference to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 right there. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that is the promise of the seed of the woman, crushing the head of Satan. Well, that's one of the promises. Well, the promise of the Old Testament was the Messiah, and that the Messiah would bring in his everlasting kingdom and everlasting righteousness. And then connected with the Messiah would be the resurrection. And so the hope of the resurrection is what is taught in the Old Testament. And that's what he says in verse 7, For this hope's sake, at the end, I am accused of the Jews. This is why he is accused. So his, he's being accused because Paul is, of course, preaching that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament, that, he, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus, remember what he told to the Samaritan woman, I am the resurrection and the life. And so he that believeth on me shall never die. Believest thou this? So Jesus is the fulfillment, the Messiah, and he is the resurrection. And so that is why Paul is being brought into here. And then so verse 8, he says, Why should it be thought a thing incredible or unbelievable with you that God should raise the dead. Now we're not, we, we know that Paul is directly speaking to King Herod Agrippa here. He, he's not addressing the Jews anymore. I, I don't believe he is trying to, uh, I don't believe he is giving his defense to be set free. He's already appealed to Caesar. And actually, officially, he wasn't even, he didn't even have to come to this. He'd already appealed. The, the, the trial's over. Any authority, would, would, there would be no overriding his appeal to Caesar, even if they were to find him innocent. So I believe Paul here is using, like I said last week, the opposition into an opportunity and this trial into his testimony. So he sees the, the opportunity. So I believe he's speaking with King Herod Agrippa and the high brass of Rome. I believe he's talking to the governors and all of this entourage that came in verse 23. 
I believe he is preaching Christ. Because he does not, just, you know, in chapter 22, actually look back there with me. Chapter 22. Verse 3, this was when Paul was speaking with the Jews. Remember the Jews that wanted to stone him and kill him? And then he starts very similar <laughs> with his defense. He goes, uh, men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. He's got a different audience here. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. And he saith, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. So here, you notice he didn't say again, I was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. Because he's not, I don't believe he's talking to the Jews now. He's not talking to the Sadducees. He's not talking to the Sanhedrin. He's not trying to, to, to this defense isn't trying to, he's trying to get himself free or justify himself for what he's, what he's doing. He has taken the opportunity to preach Jesus Christ to these Greek men. And then King Herod, who was not Greek, he was Jew. Um, because he doesn't bring up Gamaliel. If you wanted to impress a Jew, you said, I, I was brought up by the feet of Gamaliel. So he says, King Herod, this, this promise. Now, you know the Pharisees. You know the mannerism. You know the teaching. You know the Torah, the Old Testament, and the teachings. And the hope of the promises of God that are all through the Old Testament, those have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in Jesus of Nazareth. And what is the proof? Well, the proof is that God has raised up Jesus from the dead. I mean, here's the thing. He is, you know, the Sanhedrin's there, of course, listening to him. But here he says, is it in verse 8, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I believe he's talking to everybody. Because the Greeks and the heathens, they definitely did not believe in the resurrection. You remember what they did at Mars Hill. They mocked Paul for even bringing up the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Only the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. And some think that even King Herod was a Sadducee, but I, I, I don't have any evidence for that. But I, I believe Paul is talking to everybody. Is it a thing unbelievable with you that God should raise the dead? And, you know, I was thinking that this goes along so well with our Romans on Sunday morning, how God has given them the eyes of slumber and has given them the eyes which cannot see. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus fulfilled, I mean, he came and he did miracles that no man could do. Jesus came and did the miracles, and that didn't convince them. Now, what did the Jews look for? They looked for a sign. They wanted physical evidence, and then the Greeks required wisdom, right? So the Jews stumbled. And so we see, you know, Paul saying, why... If it, we have witnesses that Jesus was raised from the dead. Not only did Jesus do miracles that no man can do, but God has raised him from the dead. And if you remember how many witnesses Paul said there was, there's 500 witnesses that, that saw Jesus after he had risen up. And so, you, I mean, it's all there. It's all there for the believing. But the Jews reject. And the Jews vehemently reject. So verse 9, Paul was the same way himself. He says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. 
Verse 9, isn't that classic Pharisee? What, what did he do? He says that, verily, I verily thought with myself. Does that remind you of another passage with a Pharisee? Remember the publican and the Pharisee went to the temple to pray, and one thus prayed with himself. That's the, the, the heart of a Pharisee. A Pharisee might have a mind on God, but their hearts are far from him. So a Pharisee, all they can do is pray to themselves, within themselves, and all Paul could do back then, before he was saved, was he had this conclusion with himself that he ought to do. He came to this conclusion. He wasn't led by the Lord to do it. He ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, the things which we know that Paul did, uh, we, he denied the Messiah. He condemned Christianity as heresy. And that was all before, I mean, that was all just in Jerusalem, verse 10. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints, isn't that, isn't that interesting? Paul refers to us as saints here. Now, this is the first time, I'm sorry, I have to think I got something in my eye here. <laughs> This is the first time that we see Paul refer to them as the saints in Acts. Now, we know that Paul, in his letters, he, he addresses everybody as saints. Children of God are saints. And, and the, the, the letters which Paul wrote were, you know, there were a lot before even this time in a period of history. But this word saints is hagios, and I've talked about it many times before. And hagios is an adjective, and it means holy. So, he's talking in recollection. Back then, he didn't call them saints, did he? But now he is calling them saints. And it's an adjective. It describes a noun. It'd be the same thing as Paul saying, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the holies did I shut up in prison. It's the same word, hagios. And actually, sanctification is from the same uh, word. It is hagiaso. And that's a verb. So we'll talk about that here in a little bit more. But Paul refers to us as holy. That's the name saints, holy. That I did shut up in prison, Having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Look at all the things which Paul did. Look at all the verbs. Uh, if you look at verse 9, he did many things contrary. And then in, in verse 10, he shut up in prison. And then uh, verse 10 again, that he had gave his voice against them and was consenting unto their death. Verse 11, and I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them. Look at all these verbs. Even in two strange cities. And in Galatians chapter 1 verse 13, he says beyond measure I persecuted and laid waste to the church. And that beyond measure is one Greek word and it means to overthrow. It means you've gone too far. That he says, beyond, I, almost, I went too far punishing this way. And so look at this. Look at what Paul's doing. Look, these Jews that are condemning me right now, who are, who are going about to, to, they hate me. Whatever these men are, however much these men hate me, I was worse by ten. I was ten times worse than these guys. Isn't that something with a testimony? How when, when you give your testimony about who you were before the Lord saved you. And it's, it can be so sweet. And that is what a testimony does. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Listen to who I was before the Lord saved me. I was worse than these men. I was going around murdering them, chasing them, killing them, causing them to blaspheme. I went too far. I laid waste to the people of God. And it's, it's a remarkable thing which Paul is admitting here. 
in his testimony. And I believe that we should never, ever be embarrassed. I know many, many people could be, and they're embarrassed about who they used to be, but it gives glory to God. When you share with somebody who you used to be, and, but who the Lord has saved you and has, and has came and changed your life. I tell you, um, some of the, the sweetest things that and I loved, and I know all of you uh, know and were probably told the same thing, but when I first started here, uh, Brother Marshall would always give me his testimony, and I loved it. I, every time, and I was like, Brother, praise the Lord. Praise God. I mean, he talked about his life, and, and uh, he just, he was, he was so, he, he wanted to give glory to God for the change which he made in his life. And I know, uh, a lot, you know, most of us, maybe we won't have the same testimony. I mean, I was saved at eight years old, and uh, I may not have a, a, a dark period where I can give God glory and, and and everything, but I know that the Lord saved me, and I can give you my testimony that even as a child, uh, you know, a child cannot manufacture the fear that God put in my heart that day. A child can't do that on his own. A, a, a preacher's kid being raised and being expected to know Scripture and things of that nature, and uh, I knew Scripture. I didn't know the Lord. One day the Lord... He came to my heart, and I tell you what, I, I, felt, I, was, I felt the danger that I was in. And it, I felt so much in danger, it, it was almost hard to believe that all I had to do was believe. And I said, Mom, is that all I got to do? She says, Whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I asked the Lord to save me. I trusted in him. And I put all my faith in him and trust that he paid for my sins. He loved me. He paid for them. He suffered. And they're stamped, paid in full. And the Lord put the peace of God in my heart. I can give you my testimony and say, a child could not have manufactured the fear that God put in my heart that day. And there are many of you, and I, again, I would love to hear all of your all's testimonies about how the Lord saved you. And... But here we see that Paul is giving a stark, stark contrast to who he was versus who he is today. And that's what he says. I was worse, King Agrippa. And so verse 12, he says, this is what happened. Whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. You know, and that's something, and I've brought this up before, but, I mean, may we all, we've read this story. This might be the third time we've read about Paul's uh, uh, trip to Damascus. But let us always look at this with the appreciation that Paul was interrupted. Paul was interrupted by God. Paul knew where he was going. He had his plans. He had his agenda. He knew what he was going to go do. He had done everything before. Think about this. Paul, his whole life, his childhood dream was to be a Pharisee. He's living his dream. He's, he is not only a Pharisee, but he's the celebrity Pharisee. And he's going about, and he, he is on a crusade for the kingdom of what he thinks is God. He's doing God's service, and this is what I'm going to do. God's got to be, this has got to be God's will. Look at all the treasures I'm going to get in heaven for doing this thing. And then, all of a sudden, a bright light. Now, if you think about when the Lord saved you, it may not have been a bright light, but it was something that was startling to you. It was shocking. Like I said, that fear in my heart was shocking. And it came, and it came hard. It was shocking. This light shocked Paul. I mean, it was, it was brighter than the noonday sun. And they didn't have LED lights back there. There was nothing brighter than the sun back then. You know, they didn't have these high beams on these big escalades blinding you. Uh, there was nothing brighter. But this was. And it is 
for us to read this, yes, we know that's what happened to Paul, but isn't that what happened to us? Think about what Moses, Moses turned aside and looked at the bush, which was on fire but not consumed. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. He saw instead of three men, he saw four walking around in that furnace. And God came to us and he saved you in a shocking way, didn't he? Where you turned aside and had to see this sight. And that's what happened to Paul. He says that the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. God interrupted Paul's life. And he's going to save Paul. He's going to change Paul's life. Verse 14, And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me. And we know that that is the risen, ascended Jesus Christ. The man, Christ Jesus, don't we? I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Well, they, that lesson there, you know, not only is he telling Paul what you're doing is futile, but it's fatal. He said it's hard for thee. He didn't say you're giving me a hard time. Jesus, Jesus didn't tell Paul, hey, why are you giving me a hard time? Jesus is telling Paul, you're hurting yourself. It's hard for thee. And that's what we know with the, you know, that's how they did it back then with the, the goad that they would pry the, the ox. And that's how they would steer the cows, how they would steer the ox uh, to get them to go in the right direction. And the more that they kicked against, it was a long, sharp uh, metal rod, or what metal, but it was a sharp rod at the end of it. And the more they kicked against it, the more that it, it drove in deeper into them. And in a wonderful, <laughs> don't you just, I, I know you all do, and I pray, and you see people's lives falling apart around you, and you see they're stuck in certain situations, and they're in a desperate situation, and, and, and you know that they just need the Lord. They need the Lord. They, they need the joy of the Lord in their life and the depression they're going through, and just the, the life that they're going through. And life, could you imagine life without the Lord? How hard it would be. And so Jesus comes to Paul and he says, it's hard for you. It's futile and it's fatal. And Paul answers and says, who art thou, verse 15, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Here's the man. Here's the man that Paul had vehemently had doing many things contrary to the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm Jesus. Now think about that for a minute. The Jews, do you remember what the Jews were told? Remember, you know, if, you, if, if, if we work our way back to Jesus' resurrection, the tomb is empty. The guards can't explain it. The, how the tomb is empty. The stone wasn't rolled away. I mean, who rolled away the stone? So the tomb was empty, and so what did the Jewish high priest tell the Roman guards? They bribed them. And you can see that. I'm not sure if I wrote it down. I think it's in Matthew chapter uh, 25. It's here somewhere. I'll, I'll give it to you. Matthew, the chief priest bribed the Roman guards to tell people that his disciples came and stole his body. And that was their story. That was the high priest, the Jewish high priest's story. This is what we're going to say. This is why no one can find the body of Jesus. Is the disciples stole the body. Now, as far as we know, that's what Paul believed. I mean, this is 30 years later. And all of these Jews, they all believed that lie. Now, imagine the hush of the crowd and the disbelief when Paul quotes what Jesus says here. He says, This bright light that came to me, King Agrippa, and I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he answered and said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. 
And you think these Jews are probably looking around at each other saying, what? Then the disciples still away, and he died. And now you're saying, Paul, that Jesus was talking to you? Okay. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul saw the resurrected Christ. I mean, King Agrippa, would anything else that could come into my life make sense of where I'm standing now versus who I used to be? Other than seeing the risen Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Oh. Isn't that something? That is the preaching of the gospel. You've got to preach the resurrection. That's where it's at. The proof of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing else could have changed Paul. Nothing else could have done that. Nothing else could have changed all the disciples, all the martyrs who went into their dying breath. I have seen Jesus Christ. I saw them raise again. God hath raised him from the dead. This is the Messiah. He has fulfilled all scriptures. I mean, the passion that they, they knew this was the Messiah. But yet, they wouldn't believe. And we see that in Romans. The, the, God has given them the eyes of slumber. The one who Paul hated and hunted and despised and blasphemed. Here he is. Here he is. He truly is Israel's Messiah. And so, you know, what does Paul say the Lord did? Well, he gave him work to do. In verse 16. But rise and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. And he did. Remember Paul's talking what did happen to him. This isn't happening right now. Jesus did appear to Paul many times. We saw that. Verse 17. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. And here's a big verse. So this is a, this is a nugget. You're going to love this one. Verse 18. Here's the characteristic of salvation. Salvation's in this one verse. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. First of all, opening their eyes. And we see that there is blindness. We see that the lost are characterized by those who are blind and cannot see. They're always characterized as that. So what opens their eyes? Illumination, right? Who opens our eyes to the gospel? What opens our eyes? Regeneration. It takes the Spirit of God to open your eyes. It takes God to quicken us in our dead and sins. Right? So first, to open their eyes. The only way they're going to open their eyes is through the Spirit and regeneration. Next, what is it? And to turn them from darkness to light. What else is called a turning? Repentance. So now they have the Spirit of God. Next they repent. They turn from sin. They turn from darkness to Jesus. And here, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin. So they used to live their life after the power and the dominion and the reign of sin... But it, aren't, you, aren't you happy that grace is greater than all our sin and its reign is unto life, life everlasting and righteousness? So not only have they turned in repentance, but now they live in the power of a resurrected life. We live in the power of the Spirit. We live in that God is giving us the ability to overcome and to endure these things with hope. And gladness. We're not perfect. We still sin. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that a lot of people could misconstrue. You all aren't going to misunderstand what I'm going to say, but many people could who are out there listening that, uh, oh, I don't have time to get on that, but we know that the gifts of healing and those miraculous gifts, we don't have those today, so I just want to put that out there. Make sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The power of the Holy Spirit is from the heart. It is God which gives us the Holy Spirit. And it is the Lord which is empowering us and strengthening us day by day. And so that we live in the power of a resurrected life, 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Oh, here our sins are blotted out. We're given an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whew, that's a lot. That verse packs a punch, doesn't it? I mean, we, we, we could have spent all night just on verse 18. And uh, I believe we probably won't get to keep going verse 19, because, but um, looking at verse 18, we're just going to examine some of this. Receive that they may receive forgiveness of sins. You know, I got meditating on that. And how many times do we see Jesus in his ministry saying, thy sins are forgiven thee when he would do his miracles, thy sins have been forgiven thee. He even, when he's preaching and he's teaching, he's saying, you will not come to me that your sins should be forgiven. And it dawned on me as I was meditating this, to those who Jesus, to those who God is granting forgiveness of sins, Jesus is paying the ultimate price for. Even as Jesus walked down the streets of Jerusalem, forgiving people of their sins, he knew the cost of what that was. That he himself would bear my sins in his own body. By his stripes I am healed. Isn't it something that Jesus grants us forgiveness of sins because he paid for them. And I, I, I got to chewing on that more and chewing on that more. And if anybody has the authority to forgive of sins, it's the one who paid for your sins. And that's what he says to Paul. Up! I'm sending you amongst them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, to grant them the powerful life and not being sold under the slavery of sin, to grant unto them forgiveness that they may receive forgiveness of sins. You know, and that's the thing, is especially now in Romans, that, you know, uh, that the Lord had saved the Gentiles. They weren't seeking for the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> They didn't know they needed the forgiveness of sins until what? God opened their eyes. The very first three words which we reread. They don't know. They don't feel the weight of it. An inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith. I love that in 1 Peter. Uh, sanctified by faith. We know that in 1 Peter it says that we have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Sanctified, I mentioned that earlier, it's, it's connected with hagios, which is holy, which means to set apart for a purpose. Uh, hagioso is sanctified. It's a verb. Sanctified, being sanctified, is the act which God does. We know that God does it positionally, and we do it progressionally, Right? Sanctified by faith. Remember Jesus says, sanctify them by thy truth. Peter says we've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That means we've been separated from where we were and brought to God by God himself. Isn't that wonderful? That's sanctified. Now the other part of sanctification is the part which we're feeling. It's that inward uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit where we're renewed day by day, we're coming under conviction of the Holy Spirit, we're repenting, and we're becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We will never have a perfect internal righteousness. That's the sanctification which we feel. We're progressively becoming conformed to the image of Christ. But God has done a work of sanctification, and that's what he's talking about. We've been separated unto God, for by grace are you saved through faith. We've been sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. We've had our sins forgiven. And what was the object of our faith? He says, those who have been sanctified by faith in me. <laughs> you imagine Jesus standing there talking to you and it is legitimately faith in him and he says, in me. Oh. You know, no wonder uh, Agrippa 
That's why I had it all. I had my career path. I had celebrity. I had this. Here I am standing in bonds, in chains. I've been almost killed almost every time. God has preserved me. Everywhere I turn, somebody's trying to kill me or somebody's falsely accusing me. Only a man who has had the change which Paul had by Jesus himself would be able to endure such a life if he really wasn't changed. And that's the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the testimony which we give, that the Lord not only saved me, but he changed me. He changed me. And I pray the Lord has richly blessed you with the, the study tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this day. Lord, we pray, Father, for those who are at camp this week, and Father, we do pray that you'll just do your mighty work there and save their hearts. And Father, bring them to yourselves if they are your children to, for recommitment. And Father, you know each heart. Lord, we pray, Father, that you'll just have mercy on them and grant them repentance and life. Father, we'll give you the praise and the glory for we will praise you, Lord, for only that can be your work. We'll lift you, Lord, and we'll lift you high and magnify you. Father, we do pray for their safety this week, that they'll have a good time and rejoicing with each other and the fellowship and learning more about you. And Father, just keep them safe with this heat. And those here, here the night, Father, we do pray also, Lord, you'll just keep them safe, keep them sheltered. And Father, uh, pray for those, Lord, who are not feeling well tonight and couldn't be here, who want to be here. Father, we thank you for your great grace upon us, Lord. Just what a great and sweet salvation. What an assurance you give of our hearts. We should be able to leave here and every day be able to shout the victory. Father, All while we're here, Lord, we know that we're under your care, under your providence. And Father, one day we will see you face to face. What a sweet, sweet day. Lord, we do pray that you'll just be with each one as we leave this place.